Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Most of the women workers who spearheaded the strike in the garment industries of New York, Chicago, Cleveland, and Milwaukee had immigrant backgrounds. However, non-immigrant women in the industry also demonstrated the willingness to fight for their rights and for unionism. All the women corset workers of Kalamazoo, Michigan, who struck in 1912, were born in the United States, and in this community of 35,000 inhabitants, Fully half the citizens belong to families supported by one or more factory workers. After a spontaneous strike in 1911, wage reductions, the strike leaders formed Local H82 of the ILGWU. Then in February 1912, officials of the Kalamazoo Corset Company refused to negotiate a contract with the union and discharged a number of women employees, accusing them of disloyalty. 600 angry women workers declared a strike, demanding reinstatement of their discharged colleagues, a wage increase, and a reduction of the weekly work hours. Once the strike was underway, the women added new charges against the employers. They complained that the foreman awarded the more desirable job to those women who acquiesced to their sexual advances and neglected to collect charges from their favorites. Many girls signed affidavits describing unsanitary conditions, inadequate toilet facilities, and filthy communal drinking cups. Others testified to their supervisor's obsession with achieving sexual relations with the women workers. The management of that concern is ran by superintendents, some of them diseased and filthy, whose minds are occupied more with carnal pleasure than with the business of the firm. O's Casey, Pauline Newman, and Gertrude Burnham of the ILGWU and Lenora O'Reilly of the WTUL came to Kalamazoo to assist the strikers shortly after Casey's arrival in the Michigan community. The police arrested and imprisoned her for leading pickets in the following prayer. O God, our Father, who art generous, our employer who has plenty, has denied our request. He has misused the law to help him crush us. Thou who did save Noah and his family, may it please thee to save the girls now on strike from the wicked city of Sodom. O oh, help us to get a living wage. Grant that we may win the strike, so that we may not need to cry often. Lord, deliver us from temptation. Casey remained in jail for 37 days and provided a model of heroism for women strikers of the period. The ILGWU called for a boycott of Kalamazoo goods. WTUL members and strikers traveled through 
neighboring states to publicize the union's case against the company. The prolonged strike and boycott proved fatal to the corset company, which closed its doors permanently. But the strike of Kalamazoo, like those of Cleveland and Chicago, brought new women workers to the fore as organizers and strike leaders, and they were to use these lessons in the future. In the last months of 1910, the waste makers' shop agreements were nearing expiration, and it was clear that Local 25 was too weak to renew the agreements without outside assistance. Even with outside assistance, Local 25 was too weak to hold its own. During the shirtwaist strike, 350 manufacturers had signed agreements with the union. A year later, many of these small contractors had either gone out of business or moved to new locations. Of the 200 shops remaining, the union was able to renew agreements with 164. The large ones who were in the Manufacturers Association remained unorganized. One of the largest firms that had resisted the union was the Triangle Shirt Waste Company. This was one of the factories about which the New York Fire Commissioner, in testifying before the State Factory Investigating Commission, had said, I think that a great many of the fire escapes in buildings today are only put up to be called fire escapes. They are absolutely inadequate and absolutely useless. On March 25, 1911, the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Fire proved just how useless they were, the loss of 145 women's lives. On April 2, 1911, a memorial and protest was held at the Metropolitan Opera House by the Women's Trade Union League. Working people from the Lower East Side packed the galleries, while the orchestra, boxes, and balconies were filled with wealthy reformers. Rose Schneiderman, the leader of the Triangle Shirtwaist Strike a year earlier, rose to speak, fighting back tears. She began, I would be a traitor to those poor burned bodies if I were to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people of the public, and we are found you wanting. The cold inquisition had its rack and its thumb screws and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumb screws are the high-powered and swift machinery close to which we must work. And the rack is here in the fire trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch fire. We have tried, you citizens, we are trying you now, and you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers, by the way of a charity gift. But every time the workers come out, in the only way they know how to protest against conditions which are unbearable, the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily on us. I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way is through a strong working class movement. On April 5, 1911, 80,000 working men and women marched up Fifth Avenue for four hours in a drenching rain amid silent crowds numbering over 250,000 people to attend the funeral of the victims. The faces of the marchers expressed better than any speeches their hatred of a system that showed more concern for improved machinery than for improved working conditions. 
but their auger reached a truly explosive stage months later when they learned that Isaac Harris and Max Black, owners of the Triangle Company, tried for manslaughter in the first or second degree, had been found not guilty. It is one of those disheartening failures of justice which are all too common in this country. Even the conservative New York Tribune conceded. The New York Call put it differently. Capital can commit no crime when it is in pursuit of profits. Enraged by the callousness of the employers and their indifference to the safety and other needs of the workers, the waste makers insisted on a second general strike. The leader of Local 25 were forced to accede to their demands, but the Women's Trade Union League disapproved of the plan. At the 1911 National Women's Trade Union League Convention, Margaret Dreyer Robbins made the organization's position clear. The New York League was convinced, she said, that without effective leadership capable of instructing the rank and file in the principles of trade unionism and the best methods of getting practical results, a general strike would bring untold suffering. When Local 25 called a second general strike in October 1911, the League refused to endorse it and gave the strikers only minimal aid. In other words, the League had moved full circle from a position of cooperating with the unions on the basis of unions' policy to one of seeking to determine those policies and if its advice was not heeded, remaining aloof from the struggle or giving it only token support. In the spring and summer of 1912, the pessimism among League members over the future of immigrant women in the garment trade was dissolved by a tremendous struggle in which these women were involved. Women fur workers had a major role in achieving a great and remarkable victory in the strike in which the League itself played only a small part. In 1911, a New York State Commission conducted an investigation of sanitary conditions in fur shops. A special panel of doctors examined the workers. Two out of ten workers had TB and another had asthma. The fingers of many workers were rotted by dyes. Imagine losing fingers to rot from work and your employer not caring and unwilling to make any changes to make your work safe. Also unwilling to make any compensation to you. Today is not much different as most companies would do the same if not for regulations. The unions began its preparations for a general strike in the spring of 1912. On June 14, 1912, union members voted on the strike and the final count showed an overwhelming favorable majority. 2,135 for a general strike and only 364 against. On the first day of the strike, 7,000 fur workers in 40 shops walked off the job. On day two, 8,500. Three-fourths of them Jewish and 2,000 of them women were out from 500 shops. By the end of the first week, only members of the German Furs Union remained at work until the fifth week, at which point they too joined the strike. Although some small employers settled with the unions during the first three weeks of the strike, the two employers' associations were determined to fight to the end. Nine times... During the next 10 weeks, the employers repeated their announcement that the shop would reopen. Each time, the strikers kept the shops closed by their militant demonstrations. When Morris Sham Roth, a member 
of the Strike Committee went to the AFL Executive Council in Washington seeking financial assistance, Gomper sent him back with the message, tell the strikers to let the world know they are hungry and keep up the fight. The chairperson of the 2,000 women strikers was Russian-born Esther Polansky. She was so militant in helping to organize the union that she was selected a member of the Strike Arrangements Committee and then as head of the women's strikers. Toward the end of August, when the strike had been on for the better part of two months, negotiations finally got underway between the union and employers' representatives. On August 22nd, at a special arranged meeting of the strikers, the terms of a proposed settlement were read and explained. The strikers were granted nearly all their demands, including union recognition. Only the closed shop and the demand for a half day on Sunday throughout the year were omitted from the proposed agreement. The work week was to include a half day on Saturday during the first eight months of the year, but a full day on Saturday for the remaining four months. Socialist Meyer London, the strikers' legal advisor, was cheered when he urged them to stick to their demands. So too was Samuel Gompers, who said, Since you have rebelled, which is a sign that you no longer want to stand for it, stay out and keep up your fight until your employers yield to your demands. Two weeks later, in the 13th week of the strike, victory was won. On September 8th, the manufacturer succeeded to the strikers' demands for the Saturday half-holiday. The fighting furriers also obtained the 49-hour work week. Overtime work only during the busy season at time and a half, 10 paid holidays, the banning of homework, wages paid weekly and in cash, a permanent board of arbitration, and a joint board of sanitary control, a standing conference committee to settle all disputes with individuals from each side with five from each side and an 11th and deciding member to be named jointly by both sides and union recognition, the term of the contract being two years. During the opening weeks of 1913, the New York garment workers in both the men's and women's branches were participating in tremendous labor uprisings. At one time, more than 150,000 workers in the trade were on strike Men's tailors, white goods workers, kimono and wrapper makers, and shirt waist makers. The local needle industries have been practically paralyzed by one of the most gigantic and general uprisings which Greater New York has ever witnessed. That same day, one of the greatest parades in the history of the city occurred as thousands upon thousands, estimates varied from 25,000 to 80,000 strikers, men's and boys' garment industry marched in Manhattan and Brooklyn to protest the brutality of police and hired thugs and to demonstrate their solidarity. The line of march in the Manhattan Parade extended for more than 30 blocks and included strikers from about 800 workshops and factories. On the reviewing stand in Union Square where the speakers and reporters noted that their considerable anticipation expressed about the speech to be made by Rose Pastor Stokes, a Jewish working woman from Cleveland's ghetto who had married a millionaire but continued to devote her life to improving the conditions of the laboring class and furthering the cause of the Socialist Party. In her speech, Stokes encouraged the strikers to persevere in their demands and to 
swear not to return to work until the union had been recognized. The time had come, she said, when the employers must recognize the right of labor, whether they wanted to or not. Times sure have changed. On November 15, 1912, after a series of organizational meetings, the New York District Council of the Union issued a call for a general strike of the entire clothing industry of the greater New York and predicted that out of it a mighty tailor union will be built up. The tailors voted 35,786 for and only 2,322 against the general strike to begin on December 30th. By the end of the first week, it was conceded that more than 100,000 workers were on strike. Now that is a strike. On January 6, 1913, the union announced the beginning of mass picketing headed by a picketing committee of 10,000 strikers to secure a general 20% wage increase, a 48-hour week, union recognition, abolition of tenement housework, and improved sanitary condition in the shops. Francis Perkins, executive secretary of the Committee of Safety, and in 1933, selected to be the first woman Secretary of Labor, described the workshops and factories of the clothing industry as fire and death traps. She had the lessons of the Triangle Fire have not been learned by the employers. One report on the violence read, Blood flowed freely, skulls were cracked, ribs broken, eyes blackened, teeth knocked out, and many persons were otherwise wounded in brutal assaults on the garment strikers and pickets, not by the hired thugs and gangsters, but the cassocks who compromised a part of the New York City police force. On January 21st, the Clothing Contractors Association, speaking for itself and for the United Merchants and Manufacturers Association, agreed to enter into a conference with the purpose of devising a means of settling the strike. At this point, UGW President Thomas Rickert stepped into the situation, and as he had previously done in Chicago, disregarded both the strike leadership and the workers, and accepted an agreement to end the strike. The strike leaders feared the sellout, ejected the settlement. On the last day of February, the three largest associations of clothing manufacturers submitted a proposal for settling the strike, and Rickard again ignored both the strike committee and the strikers and promptly accepted the offer. The UGW officially announced the walkout at an end. With their struggle already weakened, the strikers were set back still further when the Jewish Daily Forward suddenly reversed itself, lined up with Rickard, and urged the strikers to accept the settlement and return to their jobs. Then on March 7th, Mayor Gaynor, acting with Rickard's express approval, ordered the police to disperse all remaining pickets. The strike faltered, and on March 11th, it ended. Three days later, Isaac Howerwich wrote in the New Review, a left-wing socialist monthly, the work of building up a permanent organization of the tailors must now begin. If they are to profit by the lessons of this strike, they must rid themselves of boss rule by Rickert and his henchmen, if need be, by cutting loose from the national organization. As a matter of fact, the strike paved the way for a 1914 rupture in the UGW and the resulting formation of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America bring with it a brighter future for all workers in the men's clothing trade, including women workers. 
Meanwhile, the ladies' garment industry was the scene of a series of militant revolts, including a walkout by the white goods workers, teenagers who worked at the worst garment shops at the most tedious tasks and who were described by one WTUL observer as the youngest, most ignorant, poorest, and most unhealed group of women, workers who ever went on strike in this country. Most of these young women earned a meager $20 a month for attaching ribbons to corset covers. On this wage, they barely survived. Sadie Aranovic paid $3 a month for a sheet and the right to half a bed, 25 cents a day for food, coffee, and roll for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, and dinner served in a basement cafe. This left her $9 for clothing, amusements, and supplemental payments to her family. Adding to the tribulations of their dreadful living standards were the daily abuses at the factory. An irate girl complained, four men salsa girls, and says hard bad words to them if they don't save the pins. Fines, fines, fines all the time. Ten cents if you lose a screw. You must make a hundred yards of ticking to pay for the screw, and then you have nothing to eat. In my place, five girls get ten dollars a week. All others get four and five. A group of 200 workers had been organized into White Goods Workers Union Local 62 several years earlier by league members, but the union had failed to grow. However, the league was still involved with the small union through Rose Schneiderman in her capacity as Eastside organizer. Throughout 1911 and 1912, Schneiderman, Samuel Elstein, whom the ILGW had appointed as part-time manager of Local 62, and Samuel Shore of Philadelphia, who replaced him, asked the ILGWU and the New York Strike Council to fund a full-time organizer and support a general strike. The international office refused. On the other hand, the League paid Rose to devote herself exclusively to the organization of the white goods trade. However, the Strike Council was reluctant to support a move for a general strike, despite Rose's arguments that only a general strike could bring about widespread organization and give the union members treasury it needed to enforce union wages and conditions. She also stressed that the waste and cloak trades and frightened by the Triangle Fire were agitating for a general strike. The members of the League gradually relented their opposition to a general strike and finally the Strike Council pledged it modest financial support. Late in 1912, the International, too, authorized a general strike in the white goods industry. On January 6, 1913, approximately 7,000 white goods workers, nearly half the workers in the trade, answered the strike call. They asked for a 20% increase in wages, a 54-hour week, abolition of child labor, of the firing system and of subcontracting, recognition of the union, and a closed shop. Once in the picket lines, the strikers encountered the usual indignities and brutalities. Police carried out their usual indiscriminating arrests, and the employer's thugs beat up the young pickets. The boss adopted a new tactic. Into the battle came the gangster, Malls. They filled their pocketbooks with stones, and when a skirmish began, they swung their loaded bags against the pickets' heads. They also carried concealed scissors, and at an opportune moment, they would cut the strikers' long braided hair. In addition, they dogged the strikers' step, keeping up a steady barrage of obscenities and urging them to join their ranks with promise of easy money and good times. These plucky teenagers did not hesitate to tell their persecutors that they would fight back, and fight back they did. 
When one boss ordered a scab to hit a young picketer, the striking girl shrugged off the blow, gave the boss such a smash with my umbrella that it flew into two pieces. He was so surprised he fell down. I was arrested, but I was so little, and he's so big and fat, the judge said go on home, and he let her off. And from that day he found out he was fighting with someone who wasn't afraid. Theodore Roosevelt paid a whirlwind visit to the strike scene and announced his shock over the working conditions and the treatment the future mothers of America had received during the strike. Bola La Follette, a daughter of the progressive senator from Wisconsin, picketed with strikers along with students from Bernard Wellesley. Victor Berger, the socialist congressman from Milwaukee, called for a federal investigation after a league members and their striking colleagues had brought 25 cases of false arrest before police commissioner William Baker. Baker charged a number of officers and reprimanded others for their treatment of the young striker. The agreement specified improvements in working conditions. Hours were reduced from 60 a week to 52. Charges for power and materials were abolished. Subcontracting was ended in the association shops. There were increases for both salaried workers and peace workers, extra pay for overtime, and four annual legal holidays with pay. In addition, the contract established a wage floor. No worker was to work for less than $5 a week. While the manufacturers refused to agree to a closed shop, they did consent to negotiate with shop chairpersons whenever a disagreement occurred. Although many objected to the agreement, the majority accepted the contract. The 10-member executive board of Local 62 elected directly after the strike settlement include nine women. Samuel Shore continued as manager. Molly Bafchett also stayed on as financial secretary. And at the request of the IGLWU officials, Rose Snyderman served on the agreements board that was established by the settlement. The women of the Rapper, Kimono, and House Dress Workers Union Local 41 walked out on January 28, 1913, and a week later, the leaders of Dress and Wastemakers Union Local 25 issued a call for the second general strike. The wastemakers walked out, involving 25,000 waste and dressmakers ended three days later on January 18th, with the acceptance of a protocol for the industry that provided for new wage scales, a 54-hour week, improved sanitary conditions, union recognition, and the establishment of arbitration boards to deal with worker grievances. The strike of the rapper, kimono, and house dress workers union lasted longer. Amid desperate personal sacrifices, the women strikers refused to accept any agreement that did not provide for union recognition. On February 13, 1913, the Manufacturers Association, feeling the pressure of public support for the strikers, signed a protocol of peace with Local 41. Two weeks later, the upsurge in the garment trade spread to Boston, where women workers in the children's dressmaking industry walked out, along with Boston's dress and wastemakers. With the assistance of Boston's Women Trade Union League, both strikes were won. On March 15, 1913, representatives of the Manufacturers Association signed a protocol agreement with Local 49, the Boston Dressmakers Union, and the ILGWU. In addition to the usual protocol terms, this court included provisions for a $5 minimum wage, the establishment of a wage scale board to investigate costs and wages, and the employment of experts to decide on equitable wages. The wave of strikes that women had waged in the various branches of the women's garment industry had won thousands of new members for the union. 
and by 1913, the ILGWU ranked as the second largest AFL affiliate, boasting 90,000 members and the second largest enrollment of women. In fact, women constituted over 50% of the international's membership. Moreover, women were becoming active in the union leadership as well. Women strike veterans were traveling around the country as organizers, helping other women strikers awakening union consciousness in otherwise apathetic regions. Other militant women unionists accepted office in their locals, attended national conventions, assumed numerous speaking and publishing duties, and led demonstrations and set on arbitration boards. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.